All right, so this is our third session in God Almighty. This is our last one already. So we will probably have gotten through maybe a third of the book. The other two-thirds of the book is yours to enjoy, all right? Uh, in the future, I'm probably not going to design books this way. I'm going to try to put as much in as we can get through. But I think this is a book we might go through again in the future, maybe in a year or two, and just give it 10 weeks, because this is 10 weeks worth of material. Um, every single thing in here is just personally kind of kicking my butt as I'm thinking through stuff. Like God's challenging me in some of these areas and I have no ability to share with you stuff that's on my heart and you don't have time to talk back with me about stuff that's on your heart. So we'll do it again. We'll take a little bit more time next time, but that's down the road. Uh, after we're done with this one, the next core class isn't next week, isn't next Thursday. It's gonna be April 12th on a Friday night. Sometimes we do those big Friday night things where we have you know, drinks and snacks and we have an intermission and entertainment. we're inter hopefully <laughs> hopefully at least teaching maybe some entertainment uh, we're gonna do that over creation in the fall so we're gonna talk about angels we're gonna talk about demons we're gonna talk about spiritual warfare we're gonna talk about lots of things uh, things that are under attack from the world against Christianity. Some of the things are our foundations when it comes to what we believe about creation. Uh, so we need to talk about those things and prepare ourselves and undergird ourselves to be able to handle conversations that are difficult. So I look forward to doing that. That's gonna be a really fun one. Lots of good conversation. Um, so tonight, we're gonna talk about communicable attributes. Last time we talked about incommunicable. Incommunicable is just a fancy way of saying ways where God's just different than us. Communicable is a fancy way of saying ways where God and us are kind of similar, where God's designed us in a way that we reflect some of his characteristics and attributes. Now, I mean, so I could say God is love, but I wouldn't say Bill is love. I would say Bill is loving, but it's not on the same level as God is love, okay? So it's similar, but it's not like exactly equal. So that's not what we're saying, but there's similarities and it's like the way God is. Here's the definition at the top on page 35. Commun communicable means shareable, but it does not mean equal. There are qualities of God that we do not have, there are some that we share, and there are some aspects of our nature that simply reflect his nature. For example, we love, but he's the one who has infinite holy love. Okay, here's some of the examples of, of communicable attributes that we share with the Lord. Instead of just going straight through, I'm going to jump around a little bit. So we're going to start with the wise, all wise, and the fancy way of saying that is omnisapient. We're going to page 43, and we're going to start there. And as we turn there, I'm going to go ahead and pray for our time and ask God to help us. Father, this is your word and this is your time and we are your people. Our desire is to meet deeply with you. Uh, grow us, change us, allow us to fall more in love with you and to know you more deeply. Uh, even this week you've pushed me and I pray that you continue to push us, uh, even if it's kind of in some hard ways, that we would know you more, that we would trust you more, that we would lean on your wisdom, lean on your goodness, your love, your patience, because we need it so much every single day. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about God's wisdom and the fact that he's all wise. I really didn't have a lot of illustrations leading into this. And then yesterday happened. Um, have you ever had a bad day? <laughs> have you ever just had a, just a hard day that didn't go the way you expected it? Um, yesterday wasn't the worst, but it wasn't, it wasn't a great day. 
so the first class called me a whiner, so you can call me a whiner if you want. <laughs> my goal isn't to complain, it's to share with you what's going on in my life so you get to know me a little bit better. Uh, so I've been a runner most of my life and a walker and very active. Uh, a year and a half ago, I was in a gym with 6,000 members. I was a personal trainer. I was probably one of the more fit people in that gym. I loved it. Uh, the last year, about year, I've had all these problems with my right foot where just it aches all the time. So I had a surgery in December to fix it. 10% of people, it doesn't get fixed. I think I get to, I'm, I'm, I'm that dime, I'm that 10%. Uh, unfortunately, it hasn't really gotten better. Uh, so that's been kind of a hard thing for me. Like I can't go for walks anymore. I just kind of feel it constantly. If I push myself, it just gets worse. So I've just been kind of been stuck. So it's been a big change for me. Uh, on Tuesday, I had a bunch of, I think they're called basal cells or betas, something. I had some, some like, some cancer removed from my shoulder. Uh, he said I should have probably came in a year and a half ago because it was pretty big by the time I came in. So I've got this good size incision right here and he said, so don't move your arm. So you're gonna have to remind me because I start talking with it. But I'm not really supposed to use it. I definitely can't lift anything. So last night for my workout, uh, I put on my big fat running shoes and I tried to walk for like 12 minutes. Um, I thought maybe I can walk for 12 minutes. But I'm not allowed to use my arm. So I take this arm and I put it in my pocket. I have on my workout clothes and my workout shirt, which I used to go to the gym and just kill it with those clothes. And I'm just this guy just scooting along, <laughs> walking down the road. And I just had to have a conversation with the Lord. Like I'm like, who am I? What has happened? Are you sure this is how you want me to be living right now? You know, you just see that, that little fellow just walking down the street, no hair, gray hair, like, good job, little guy. Like, that was me, okay? So I know someday I'm gonna be that. I just didn't think it was gonna be today. Uh, so that was kind of hard. Um, so we're talking about God being all wise. So I was just trying to, I was asking him some questions, like, are you sure this is the best plan? Like, we were just having a conversation. I think at the end of the conversation, that is me talking and him just reminding me of his word. He's like, you can trust me. I've got your back. This is good for you, even though it may not feel that way. I'm working on your identity. Your focus is who, I, who you are in me, not who you are at the gym. So there's, there's been some good in that. Uh, so after we had that conversation, I went home, sat down. I'm like, all right. And then I got a phone call from my wife. Her car broke down like broke down on the side of the road. It wouldn't move forward anymore. It was smoking. And she kept kind of driving it. So, um, so the transmission that was probably a little off, you know, if you keep driving that thing, it's smoking, eventually it doesn't work anymore. So we burned that sucker up. So transmission blown, radiator blown. Uh, so we got to find out today that it's like, it's a lot. I mean, like to replace those two things, it's worth it costs almost as much as the worth of the car. So I got to spend today car shopping because we have to have two cars. Uh, so I was out in the middle of the night. I know nothing about cars. My dad's a mechanic. And that's the one thing that really frustrated him about me, his oldest son, is I hated cars. And every time he teach me something, I never learned it. We could talk theology all day long. But if you tell me to, to point to the carburetor, I have no idea where the carburetor is. Like, I have no idea. So I'm out there in the middle of the night with flashlights trying to figure out what's wrong with the car. I don't know. So you have just have to call someone to tow your car. So it got towed. Um, so it was just one of those days, okay, where I'm like, I thought we had this down, Lord. Like, I thought we'd had a good conversation. We were just ready to have a good, a good evening and be done with it. And then that happened. And then in the morning, this is kind of related. 
I get up early to come here for a 6 a.m. class and I try to keep the lights off because I want my wife to sleep. When she sleeps, she's in a better mood. That's good for her, that's good for me. So like, I want her to sleep. We have a dog, his name's Captain. He usually sleeps on the bed. He was sleeping for some reason on the floor at the end of the bed. So I get out of the bed, I'm walking around, and I think I step on a pile of clothes. It's not, so I, I squish the poor dog. Like I step on him twice. He, he doesn't whimper or whine, he just takes it like a, Man, and, but, he, but he does pick his head up and just kind of stares at me. I'm like, sorry, sorry. And then I keep walking into the bathroom. Um, and then, then I come out of the bathroom and I, and I open, we have two wood doors that slide into the bedroom out into my living room. So I go out of those two doors. I leave all the lights off to grab something. And I was going to go back in and brush my teeth. I go back towards my bedroom and the dog's sitting there in the doorway. He never leaves the bedroom when my wife's in there. So I don't know what he, whoa. I don't know what that moment was for him, but he's sitting there staring at me. I'm like, I'm sorry. So, I, I, so I'm like, I'm petting him. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like I thought maybe he was thinking I was mad at him. I don't know. I don't think dog. I don't know what the dog was thinking. So I'm like, hey, you need to go back in the bedroom because otherwise he's going to start whining and wake my, my wife up when I leave. So the door is halfway open, halfway closed. So I turn the dog around. I said, come on, let's go. So I put my hand on his side, put my hand on his backside, so start walking him towards the door. I miss. I run him right into the door. So the dog just goes boom, right into the door. And he like just hits it because it's dark and kind of looks back at me. And I look at him and it's like, sorry, buddy. So then I take his head, put it through the hole, and then I push him through the hole. And he just turns around, sits down, and just stares at me. I said, I got to go. And I shut the door. OK, so that's, that's how my morning went. Um, so. So point being, and this isn't a real powerful point, but I was thinking about God's wisdom. And I was thinking about me. Like, if you were to ask Captain today, how wise is your owner? How do you think he'd respond to that? He'd be, he'd be like, well, look at the bump on my head. Look at the bruises on my body. The guy's not real sharp. Like, he, he can't seem to keep track of, of me of open and closed doors, of where his feet go, like he just wouldn't trust me. And it would be totally legit. Like he, he deserves to say that about me if you were talking dog talk. Um, <clears throat> so I can't even take care of my pet very well, but just reminds me of the Lord being like so infinitely above me. Okay, so I'm here and my pet really isn't all that much, I'm not that much greater than my pet. But then the Lord's way up here and he just, is, he just kind of reminded me on the way here to teach the class, I never make that mistake. I never step on you. I never run you head first into a door. Like you run, sometimes you run yourself into a door, but I never run you into a door. Um, I've got your best in mind. I've got my glory in mind and I'm actually being good to you through hard things. I can't say the same thing about the way I take care of my dog, but he can say that about me. So it just reminded me how good he is in comparison to what you and I have and what you and I are. Um, and he's consistently that way. So that was just, it was just kind of a good illustration for me, a picture in my mind reminding me of God's goodness even in, in hard days, because you're going to have them. I'm going to have another one. You're going to have another one. Hopefully not tomorrow, but it's going to happen. So <clears throat> thinking about meditating on, believing that our God is all wise really helps us in those moments and those kinds of days. Here's the definition, the bottom of page 43. God knows how to use his knowledge to accomplish his ends in the best way. 
the perfection of God whereby he applies his knowledge to the attainment of his ends in a way which glorifies him most. So in God's wisdom, in God's goodness, he knows how to work something to achieve exactly what he intends to achieve. So you and I, we don't know everything, so it's really hard to wisely walk through everything. So if there's a thousand million dots that need to be connected in this world, he's connected all of them and he gets them. You and I can probably only see 10 of those dots. And we're still trying to get from dot two to dot three to connect them correctly. He sees them all perfectly, all the time. The dots in the moment, the dots from the past, the dots in the future, like he gets how the whole thing works together. You and I just don't have access to those things. So we're so dependent on his wisdom, not our own. Your perspective and my perspective is so much different than his perspective. So like I'm sitting there in the morning and I can't even tell if the door's open or closed. And I walk my dog into the side of the door. So like that's, that's your perspective and mine. Like it's, it's dim. It doesn't have all the pieces and components of your life put together to be able to make wise decisions. But God sees all of it, even in the dark. He knows where everything is and how it works. He knows what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. He also knows what could have happened what would have happened if this would have taken place. He knows the would-haves and could-haves. So he knows how to chart your course in a way that brings him much glory and brings you much good and the people in your life much good. But I'll tell you what, if he would have said like 24 hours ago, how do you feel about your foot hurting today, your shoulder hurting today, your car breaking down, having to pay for another car, I would have said, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you. But he says, no, it's really actually what best, what's best for you. Check the box, check the box, check the box, check the box. So his perspective and mine are different. So I'm so glad he doesn't ask me. I'm so glad that he doesn't ask you. How do you feel about this happening? Like it just, it happens. And in the moment, we get to choose whether or not we trust him. Whether we try to see things from his point of view or from our point of view. Now this first verse, um, I was flipping through Google as I was looking up these verses, and I think I was, I was using the KJV as I was looking through them. And my goal here in saying this isn't to pick on a translation. Um, I'm not trying to make a point. But in 1 Timothy 1.17, in the KJV it says, the only wise God. But in every other translation, the word wise isn't there. So when I looked it up in NIV, NAS, and all the other translations, it's not there. So I'm like, oh, what just happened? So I went back to the Greek text, and it's also not in the Greek text. It's the word Sophia, which is the word wisdom in Greek. You probably, probably know that, um, but it's not there. So it just, they took it from a, a manuscript that was not as old or quite as accurate. So both in 1 Timothy 1.17 and in Jude 25, in the KJV, you have wise God, but it's not actually there in the, what we would consider the, the best text. Um, my goal in that isn't to throw a grenade on anything. I just want you to know, like, that's why it landed there, but it probably shouldn't land there. What most likely happened, and this is totally speculation, totally opinion, is the concept or the phrase, the only wise God, because it is found in Romans, probably just was something that was said often and was used often and was quoted often. So it wouldn't be unusual for that to fall into an older manuscript in the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th century where the King James was using 6th and 7th century manuscripts. So oftentimes things fall in, things get bigger over time, so you have to get back to what was the actual original text. And the older they are, the 2nd century texts help us do that. Um, but let's go to Romans then, instead of to 1 Timothy, let's go to Romans chapter 11. 
What's the book of Romans about, especially chapters 1 through 11? Do you remember? How to live the Christian life. Close. That's going to be the right answer for the next question. The gospel? Oh, we, we're not using our microphone. The gospel. So I'll repeat the questions, but eventually, Oprah, I'm going to have you walk around and, <laughs> and, and, and do your thing. So his answer was the gospel. That's right. So Romans 1 through 11 is about the gospel. 1 through 3, the sinfulness of man. 4, 5, 6, the work of Jesus. 7, the hard things about the Christian life. 8, the victory of the Christian life. 9, 10, and 11, how Israel and the church kind of work together now into the future. So it's all about the gospel. And Paul, when he's done writing this, so he, he knows he's being inspired by God. He's not looking at his own writing and complimenting himself. He realizes that God is working in and through him to write this book. And in verses 33 and 34 of chapter 11, this is his response to what he's written, what God has taught him. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? So, as he peers at the work of the cross, who Jesus is, what he accomplished, how he works in and through Christians to grow them and transform them and to sanctify them and to change them, his response is, there is such depth and riches in the incredible wisdom and knowledge of God. His response is, God, you are so wise. What a cool response to the gospel. Because there's so many different things he could have said. He could have said, God, you're so holy. God, you're so merciful. God, you're so loving. God, you're so patient. And all those would have been true. But here, the attribute he focuses on and he pokes and points out is, you are so wise. Beyond our understanding, you are that wise. You have that much knowledge. Let's go to the very last verse in Romans. So, Carol, what... What is the second part of Romans about? Chapters 12 through 16. How to live the Christian life. How to live the Christian life. Very good. So <clears throat> it's kind of the response to the first part of Romans. So the first part is the gospel. The second part is how to live the Christian life. So the very last verse of Romans is Paul's response to what he's been taught through the Holy Spirit and what he's written down in the second part of Romans. And he says this, To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. Again, he could have picked any number of attributes, but the attribute he points at, the attribute he talks about, that he brings attention to is the only wise God. Through Jesus Christ be glory forever. I just think that's really interesting. Like as you look at how God grows us and changes us and works in and through us, one response that we should have is, you are so wise. You get it. You put all the pieces together. You see the dots that I don't see. You chart a path that I would have never known to chart. And you walk me with wisdom every step of that path. Only you are wise, not me. I've got some really cool friends. They're great, but you're the only wise God. You're the one that directs my steps with wisdom. You know all things. Only you can I trust. That's how Paul responds to all of that. I think it's awesome. I just think it's really cool with the context. So part of that means is as I look at the cross, one of the things that happens to me is I go, I would have never thought of that. I would have never put those pieces together. At the cross, we see his wrath and his love at the same time. 
At the cross, we see his justice and his mercy at the same time. Okay? At the cross, we see his anger on display. We see his justice roll forth. And we see grace, crazy grace. Okay, so all those things are happening kind of at the same moment, in the same place where you see attributes that normally feel like they shouldn't go together are all perfectly blended in who God is as Jesus takes our debt on himself on the cross. How wise. I mean, how would we have ever put those pieces together? We wouldn't have. That's why the gospel never becomes like an old thing. The gospel never becomes a, well, I already got that thing. It never becomes simple. It never becomes, it's never one page, if that makes sense. Like it's always, it's complex. There's layers to it. It's always radically changing me. The more I get it, the more I understand it, the more I know it, the more I focus on it, the more I meditate on it, the more I fall in love with my God, the more overwhelmed I am with his wisdom. That's what happens as we stare at the gospel and think about who we were without Christ, what we did without Christ, what we deserve because of what we did without Christ, and that he would choose to step out of heaven and do what he did the way he did to save your rotten soul and my rotten soul out of the goodness of his own heart, not because he was obligated, but because he chose to. It makes no sense. I mean, it's beyond comprehension. We're left just saying, how unsearchable. I mean, that's just such a right response. Like, it's unsearchable. I could write volumes and never come down to understanding why you love us that much. You gave up everything, and you didn't need to give up anything. We rebelled against you. We're the guilty party. But you bore the punishment, and you did nothing wrong. All you've done is love us out of abundance. So the cross is forever deep and rich. Okay? You could write about it for the rest of your life. You could sing about it for the rest of your life. And you will sing about it for the rest of eternity. So between now and when we see Jesus face to face, we're going to grow ever more deeply in our understanding of the cross. And then we see him, we say something like, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's how we respond. Our first response is remembering the cross as we look at the glorified Jesus and say, you're worthy. Because of what you did and who you are, I stand here, you stand glorified, and I have to proclaim you are worthy because you were slain in my place. It's something that we think about, something that just we're absorbed in for all of eternity. So it's okay to get a little excited about it now. It's okay to think about it a little bit now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So it says verse 21, but I want to start in verse 18. Let's just play with this for a little bit. Steve, would you mind shutting that door? You don't mind? So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This whole section is about wisdom. It's kind of comparing the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. It's comparing the way people view God who don't know him and the way people view God who do know him. Verse 18 says this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you wouldn't mind grabbing that microphone. So how is it described? Like how is, so when it comes to the way the world views the cross, what should be our expectation? How does the world view the cross? When they look at it, what kind of things do they say? Oh, 
Sometimes they say it's a myth. Mm, absolutely. They say it's a myth. I don't know if this is going to work or not. It might be intimidating, you know. I'll just repeat your answers. We'll just put that down so we can turn that off. What are your other thoughts without the microphone? How's the world view the cross? It's not possible. It's not possible? Good. What else? There's a song that says, He grew the tree that he knew would be the old rugged cross. Hmm. And I often think about the, the power or the wisdom that God had to plan to go through this procedure hmm. so that Jesus would take our place. That's great. So we, as believers, see the wisdom in how God did it. He grew the tree that Christ died on. That's really good. How's the world view it? So here it says, foolish. It says foolish. So you and I as believers, we just got done talking about this, we look at the cross and it says here, we say, that is the power of God right there. We look at the gospel, we look at the cross and we go, there it is, the power of God. The world looks at the exact same thing and they shake their head and they go, how foolish. How ridiculous. I remember a guy I worked with once, he just looked at me and said, do you really believe that? They question, they think yeah. you're crazy for believing that. I have a friend that claims she doesn't believe in God. And, and I can understand if you don't have a love for God like we do, and you just have this presented to you as fact, hmm. I can see how people would not be able, because it's the Holy Spirit in me that gives me the ability to know God. Well said. And as a non-believer, you don't have anything mm. in you helping you mm. to know God. That's good. So in the world's wisdom, they look, the world looks at the cross and says, what a fool. You say, what a savior. They say, what a fool. Let's keep reading. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the tongue-in-cheek foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So even though the world was denying God and denying the message of the cross, and the world was saying it's foolish, God went ahead and used this foolish message to save and to redeem and to reconcile people to himself. Paul sometimes is a little tongue-in-cheek. That's what he's doing here. You call the message foolish, this message is changing people all around the world. Okay, that's what he's saying. Verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay? So, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks or to the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews, um, it seems like foolishness. But to those who are called, they simply look at it and say, there's the power of God. And you catch the next thing, there's the wisdom of God. So, one way of, of being pushed with thinking about how wise God is, is to stare at the cross and to think about all that he did for you and for me. Your understanding of his wisdom starts to climb. Your appreciation starts to climb. You can have a bad day, 
things can not go your way. You can have aches and pains you don't expect, a diagnosis you don't expect. Cars, homes, things can fall apart. But you can say, if you're wise enough to plan out the gospel and to work that out the way that you did, certainly, certainly, you can handle this little thing. If you're wise enough to do that, you're wise enough to handle this. Verse 25 says, because the foolish, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If we were to continue reading, he goes on to say, and again, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's also kind of true. He says that God used those who are not noble. God used those who are weak. God used those who are considered foolish. And those are the ones that he saved. Those are the ones he, that he calls his own. And by doing that, he shames those who are strong. He shames those who are noble, who think they're wise. By taking this foolish message and taking the world and flipping it on his head, saying, you think that you're wise, but look at this. This message changes everything. The cross, Jesus, turns your world upside down. What you call foolish is radically changing the people all around you. You think you're wise, but you're a fool. You cannot challenge God. At the end of the day, he will demonstrate he is wise and the world is foolish. And he does that primarily and mostly through the incredible work of Jesus. Okay? So it's a great passage about the wisdom of God seen in the message of Christ. Let's go to the next page. I'm not going to spend as much time on these verses. At the top of page 44, Psalm 104, verse 24 says, O Lord, how many are your ways? In wisdom you have made them all. Ephesians 1.8 talks about the wisdom of God's plan. Proverbs 2.6-7 says the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So when the Lord speaks, he speaks with wisdom, with understanding, and he gives wisdom. James talks about that. If you need wisdom, ask for it. God loves to give it to you. Because when God speaks, he speaks with knowledge and understanding. So you gain wisdom when you listen to his words. So let's work on this next question together. And this might be a microphone thing, or if you just speak loudly, I can repeat your answer if it's not too long. How does this truth impact our faith, point of view on life, and our perspective on suffering? So knowing that he is all wise, knowing that he sees how all the dots come together, he can see the future impact of all the would-haves and could-haves, how does that reality begin to affect the way you view your life, the way you respond to suffering? Whatever I'm going through, then God's got a purpose for it. Hmm. It may be down the road, whatever I'm going through, I'll be able to help someone else with it. That's good. So we see purpose in the hard things. God could actually use those hard things to help other people. Very good. Other thoughts? But just like you, we have this conversation back with God, but how is this glorifying you? I'm, hum, hum, I'm walking around like an invalid. How is that glorifying you? Or I've got this pain here, and woe is me. How is this glorifying you? So we don't always understand. No. And that means that we don't always want to accept. <laughs> That's um, a good point. I have a bad sciatic nerve issue, and mm. I keep thinking, God, just why don't you fix it? I could be my regular bouncy self for you if you would just fix it. And knowing mm. that God has the ability to do something and he doesn't, mm. 
sometimes God and I get into an even deeper conversation on the question of why. Hmm. You can. So it's like your kids coming to you and asking you for something over and over, and they know that you can do it for them, but yet you're not going to do it for them because it's not good for them. Hmm. Yeah. That's really good. That's really good. Did we get that? That's a lot to repeat, so I'm glad we got that. Um, <clears throat> that's really good, and it's really hard. The Psalms teach us that we can have those kinds of conversations. As you read the Psalms, don't you hear it? Why, oh Lord, why? You know, like, anger keeps coming on top of me. Your anger keeps crashing on me like waves. Where have you gone? You've left me in the pit. Like, he asks some really hard questions, the different authors of the Psalms. And God's okay with it. God doesn't say, I'm going to zap you for talking to me like that. I mean, he doesn't do that. Like, he's okay with those conversations. He's big enough to handle it. Now, it doesn't mean that he answers it and gives you details of, as to why he's doing what he's doing. But on some level, and the authors normally do this in the Psalms, they say, I don't get it, but I do trust you. I don't get it, but I do trust you. So there's a level of trust with the questioning, okay? So both are kind of happening there. So perspective. You and I, uh, we'll do a couple things here. So one, like for the different things in my last 24 hours I didn't necessarily, I wouldn't have voted for in my life, I have no idea how many things God protected me from in the last 24 hours. So the couple little things that were maybe a little annoying for me, I have no idea what sort of catastrophic things he protected me from. So even with the car and my wife in the car, she just had to pull over to the side of the road. She wasn't on the highway. There wasn't an accident. She wasn't stuck in a scary part of town. I mean, like, it wasn't that big of a deal. It's just a car. We plan on going on vacation. We were going to take that car on vacation. Imagine if we were somewhere in the mountains stuck on the side of the road. There's bears around here, right? I've seen them. I've seen them. So, like, that could have happened. So, on some level, I, I think that sometimes the Lord will remind us, I protected you from two dozen things today that could have happened. I let one go through for your growth. We don't tend to grow only in the sunshine. We also grow in the dark. That's a weird way of saying that. But, like, Matt in one of his sermons talked about this. He has this plant. <laughs> So Matt liked to keep the lights on in his office 24 hours a day. I have no idea why he wanted to do that. Maybe he wanted you to think he was working 24 hours a day, <laughs> seven days a week. And he does almost work that much. Like he's, a, he's the hardest working pastor I know. But the plants kept growing taller and taller, but without the darkness, it never had time to grow roots to match the height of the plant. So eventually he walked in one day and the plant was sideways with all the dirt everywhere. <laughs> that would happen to you and me. Like, we need some dark moments to grow some roots, to grow some depth. You need sunshine and you need rain to grow a plant. You need light and you need darkness to grow a plant. You need them to grow up and you need them to grow deep. God allows some of those things that cause us to grow deep. If I look back in my life, I mean, I had some legit conversations with God yesterday. And even this morning in the car. If those things hadn't have happened, I probably would just turned on music and just ignored him. Like, those things draw me closer to him, even if I don't enjoy them or appreciate them. But I begin to appreciate him more. And that's what it's really all about. So it's a perspective thing. Another perspective. You and I spent large portions of our life rebelling against God, sinning against God. Like, you and I don't deserve any mercy or grace. 
We don't necessarily even deserve his goodness. Like we really deserve punishment. But we'll have something that's off a little bit. So we're, we're focused on the 1% that's bad and we ignore the 99% that we don't deserve that we're receiving every moment of every day. Like we kind of forget that part. Jesus never sinned against the Father. He was perfect in every way. In fact, he, come, he came just to sacrifice himself for us. Yet every moment of his life was difficult. People spit on him. People betrayed him. People would try to trick him. People were against him. His own, home, his own hometown wanted to stone him or throw him off a cliff. Like He was hated even though he came in love. He was deserted in the last moments. He was tortured, beaten, and put on a cross and killed for something he didn't do. And he never even sinned. So think about that perspective. Like you and I are still sinning. Like every single day we struggle with sin in our thoughts and our intentions and our motives and sometimes our actions. And we're like, why are you letting that happen to me? Look at Jesus. Horrible things happened to him and he did nothing wrong ever. He only loved in grace and truth. So if he allows his own son, if he allows Jesus to go through hard things, and he never rebelled against the Father, and you and I are still struggling with the spirit of rebellion, I mean, who are we to complain? My goodness. I still complain, okay? I'm not trying to like say, I don't, you do. I do. I've <laughs> been working on it the last 24 hours trying not to. Uh, but, I mean, that, that's just another perspective, I think, thinking about that as well. Um, one of my favorite questions is not why is this going on, but how long, oh Lord, mm. how long do I have to tolerate this? And you know, it's just as bad it's true. as asking why. That's a good point, Bill. Yeah. yeah. And the psalmists agree with you. I mean, that's, you can quote verses saying exactly what you just said. So that's good. All right, so where are we at? Let me throw one more perspective at you. I was sitting down at lunch yesterday with a, a friend, and he's helping lead some stuff for me. He's probably 20, 25 years older than I am, and he was just talking about his life, and he does a ministry with some high school kids um, who are in really tough circumstances um, in, in juvenile detention centers. And he said, if I shared the hard things in my life with someone who's 16 years old, if I sat down across the table with them and said, I lost my mom, I lost my dad, I lost a grandchild, I lost a marriage, I've had several really hard physical things that I've gone through, they would look at me and think that my, my life was a horror story, right? they think it was a horror movie. But he said, over the course of close to 70 years, those things just seem like little potholes. There's been so many blessings, so many wonderful things. So even just from the perspective of a, of a teenager to the perspective of a senior citizen, this person thinks it's a horror story. This person sees the wisdom of God and the mercies of God interspersed between the hard moments. So even just the perspective between someone younger and someone older is, is huge. So imagine the perspective that you have or I have versus the perspective God who sees all of time has. It's amazing. I mean, so from his perspective, he sees all of it. So even though sometimes in the moment it seems overwhelming, he knows exactly what you're going to be doing 10,000 years from now. He knows exactly what you're going to be doing. He knows what you look like, what you're going to be saying, your relationships, your relationship with him, with the body of Christ who's going to live with you forever. He sees all of it. So he knows that some of the things that are going to happen right now to you affect all those components maybe of who you're going to be 10,000 years from now. 
<coughs> memories you have, thoughts you have, things that you now praise him for because he took you through in this life to benefit and bless that life. He sees all of it. We just don't. We just don't. All right, let's jump down a little bit. Let's go to favorite quotes. We're going to jump all the way down there. And again, these are just quotes I just happen to like that I put in here because I think they're fun. Uh, whenever I read something from Tozer, I'm usually going to put it in. I'm just a big fan. So here's a Tozer quote. All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. And all his acts are as pure as they are wise, as good as they are wise and pure. Not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. We probably need to read that three more times to really get it, but, but you, you get it, like, wow. Uh, let's go to the next page. This is a funny quote, page 59. So you're gonna hear it and you're gonna say, is that what he meant to say? Yeah, it is what he means to say. When Christian theology declares that God is wise, it means vastly more than it says or can say, for it tries to make a comparatively weak word bear an incomprehensible plenitude of meaning that threatens to tear it apart and crush it by the sheer weight of the idea. Did you catch what he's saying there? Like what he's saying is we call him wise. And that poor little four-letter word has to bear the weight of what it means when we say that God is wise. He's saying the concept and the reality of God's wisdom almost shakes and destroys and tears apart that poor little four-letter word trying to hold in all that meaning. That's just cool, isn't it? Isn't it just cool the way he writes and the way he thinks? Um, so his point being is we say wise, but it's just the beginning of starting to understand the trajectory of what that means. It's really neat, really beautiful. Um, so these next three questions I have at the end of all the different attributes. And my goal with these three questions is it is to take this, this concept, this idea, this reality of God's character and his attributes and make us slow down for a minute and think, if I really believe this, how does my life change? If I really believe this, how does my world change and my relationships change? So let's play with this for a minute. And we might want to use a microphone here. If I truly believe this character, quality, or truth about God, how would I think, or how would I feel, or how might I behave differently in the way I talk to him, in the way I talk to others, in the way I treat him, in the way I treat others, in the way I handle situations, and how I respond to situations? How might the reality of God's wisdom alter, change some of those responses in my life? My flight's canceled. I wouldn't even have a, a flicker of, of you know, anger or... Hmm. What am I going to do? Or hmm. anxiety? You know, I, it'd just be. Well, this must be the the, the the way it's supposed to be today. Hmm. So hard circumstances, we're able to look at those and say God knows what's best here. Okay, it's good. Which creates what some peace, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Would it make you so passive that there wouldn't be the highs and the lows in your life? You would just be. Whatever. I think there would still be some highs and lows. I think godly people still have highs and lows, but the highs and lows might be a result of different things. Instead of a, a high being anxiety and the low being, whew, that worked out okay, the high might be joy in God using me, and the low might be, I can't wait for him to use me again. I mean, I, it, might, it might just look differently, 
Uh, I think God's designed us emotionally with passions and desires to go up and to go down, but it doesn't always have to be stress-driven or anxiety-driven or fear-driven or worry-driven. And, and even we see Jesus, okay, at the end of his life, as he's thinking about the cross, it says that he, he says himself, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. And he sweats drops of blood. So we're still going to have some really hard things. But Jesus also says in that moment, but not my will. I'm going to give this to you. Let your will be done in the way you want it to be done. So, there, so we see highs and lows still in Jesus' life. And we see some anxiety and some stress and some difficulty. But you also see this relatively, uh, this relatively quick ability to, to kind of move into a place where he says, but I, I trust you. So Jesus trusts in the wisdom of his father. Okay. Captain does not look at me with trust, okay, because I make bad choices with my dog. But the son can look at the father and say, even though I'm heading towards a cross, I know this is the best thing. I know that this is wise. I know that you're working this out for the good of the world and for your glory and for mine. Let's do it. Okay? I don't know if any of us ever get there. But none of us are ever going to face what Jesus faced. But I don't know if we get there, but may God continue to grow us to look more and more like Jesus. Any other thoughts? How does that change the way we act or think or respond? Maybe change a perception? Awesome. God's going to call me home someday. Yeah. In his wisdom. In his wisdom. In his wisdom. And it's interesting, even that moment, like there's a little sense of somebody maybe looking at you and even thinking, she's being foolish. There could even be some thought of that. But he can't deny the fact that your world has been changed because of what you believe. Because there's, for you saying that, there's the next 10 people are going to come in and they're shaking with fear and you're sitting there with confidence. So there's a part of him that's going to say, is this woman foolish? And there's a part of them that says, I wish I had what she had. Yes. Which is a wonderful, which is a wonderful testimony. So that's a, that's a beautiful example. Se segwaying on that, when I was going in for my cancer surgery, um, you know, the nurse patted my hand. Oh, it, it's fine, you'll catch it. <laughs> the nurse patted my hand and said, you know, honey, it's going to be okay. And I, and I, I just blurted out. I said, yes, it is. I'm either going to wake up and see my husband, or I'm going to wake up and see Jesus. Hmm. And, 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 and then, in that moment, it was it was real. I wasn't just you know making it up. Hmm. So I mean, it, he is, it is real. <laughs> hmm. That's really good. Great examples, great examples. Uh, last question there in that section says, how will I remember what I've learned about the Lord? Is there a mental picture or maybe an illustration or a verse or a thought 
that kind of pops into your head, mind, or heart that helps you remember this. So when something rushes at you and hits you that you're not expecting, what's a thought or a picture or an illustration or a verse that you can run to? What do you think? What pops in your head? Give me some examples. Because I want this to stick. This is how it sticks. Yes, Dan. Isaiah 41, 10, fear not. I'm the Lord, I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Good. Isaiah 41, 10. I'll strengthen you all. I'll uphold you. And then the rest of the verse. First Thessalonians 5, 18. Be thankful for everything, for it's God's will for you in mm. Christ Jesus. Awesome. First Thessalonians 5, 18. Good one. Other thoughts, images, verses. Mine's not as good as yours. I just picture myself running my dog into the door. And I'm like, God's better than that. And that makes me feel really good. Sorry, that's, that's what I think of. Another thing you can do is you, you, can just, you can picture the cross. Like, we see God's wisdom in the cross in a mighty, crazy, amazing way. That's just another thought. Uh, let's get through a little bit of one more. Let's go to the, the attribute of God's spirituality and invisibility, page 39. This is a shorter one, but we still won't get through all of it. We'll get through a little bit. This one's just interesting. This, I think, kind of pushes us mentally a little bit. Top of page 39, when we're talking about God's spirituality and his invisibility, the definition is this. God does not have boundaries or limits. He exists everywhere, fully, at all times, and in all places. In a limited way, in a limited way, we share his spirituality and we worship him in and through this part of our nature. So this is just really hard to think about at this on this side of eternity, on this side of death. But you have a spiritual nature. If I reached out and somehow could just take your body away from you, and I had it and I put it over there you would still be you. Like there's an immaterial part of you. A heart, a soul, a spirit, a mind, the body, the scriptures uses a lot of different ways of describing it. It's, we would all say it's your immaterial part of who you are, your spirit, but that is still part of you. So you can lose your body and still be you. One day God gives you back your body after you lose it, but in between you don't become someone else, something else, you are you. God's actually given you a spiritual part to who you are. Why? Because God is spirit, and for him to relate to us and to have that relationship and to go deep with us, he needed us to be kind of like him in that way, to relate to us. For us to worship him, if you go to John chapter 4, verse 24, it's really important that we're partially spirit because it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So if we do worship him, he gives us some stipulations. This is how you worship me, in spirit and in truth. So what's the in truth part mean? What does it mean to worship him in truth? Through Jesus. Through Jesus, through the work of Jesus, through the words of Jesus. So to worship him in truth means I'm responding to this. Like I'm not just making stuff up. Like as I, as I interact with God's son and God's word, I'm responding to it in worship. Kind of like how Paul did. As he spent time reading and writing about the gospel, his response was, you are so amazing. 
You are awesome. Like he does that over and over again throughout his letters. There's a response to God's truth. And the response is worship. But he also says we're called to do it in spirit. All right, theologians, let's work on this. What does that mean to worship God in spirit? I looked it up in commentaries to help me, so I cheated. So I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you their answers, uh, but I looked it up also. But do you have any thoughts? Worship with your heart, your inside, not just what you do, but what you, what you think, your, your inner self. So you're worshiping not just with your outer self, you're also worshiping with what composes of the inner self. I would say there's definitely a piece of it. So if you read Isaiah and different parts in the Old Testament, sometimes the Old Testament worshipers would worship God outwardly. I mean, they might be the, on Sunday morning, they might, it might have had the, the loudest singer worshiping. But God looks at some of those people and says, you're worshiping me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Therefore, I detest your worship. I detest your festivals. I can't stand it when you bring me sacrifices. In fact, stop it. Okay? So, there's this reality that God's made us a material and immaterial being, your body and your spirit, and when you worship him, you're supposed to use both. Your outward part is worshiping him. Gotta stop using my left arm. Your outward part is worshiping him, and your inward part should be worshiping him. If only the outward part is, God says, I want more. I actually don't like that. You're sort of pretending. You may actually be worshiping because you want someone to see you doing it, not because you actually want to give me honor and praise. God's about his glory, and that doesn't bring him any glory. At that point, it seems like you're trying to bring, we're trying to bring ourselves glory. So God doesn't want us to be false worshipers. So to be true worshipers, the inside part of who we are, our passions, our delights, our desires, our intentions, our motivations are also directed at God while we're worshiping. Not just our mouths, not just our hands, not just our bodies, but who we are on the inside, our spirit. Can you think of any other components to that idea? Yes, sir. It's also not tied to any particular geographic location. Like you have to mm. be in this space because this is the worship space. This is the holy space. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to. You can't worship God where you're at. You have to go to this place to worship Him. He's everywhere. He's spirit, so mm. we can worship Him wherever we are. That's good. There's no limitations. That's really good. That's a great application to this. God is spirit, so that means he's everywhere. And your call is to worship him in spirit and truth. He doesn't say, worship me here or there. It's not a Dr. Seuss thing. It's not red fish, blue fish, worship me here or there fish. Like it's, you, you worship me anywhere. That's a terrible illustration. Um, you can worship me anywhere. You just have to respond to truth and respond with your whole being. You could be on the side of a mountain, sitting by the sea, laying in your bed, sitting at the table for breakfast, and all those places you have equal opportunity to worship me. So the place isn't sacred, he is sacred. And he's giving the ability to walk into that sacred presence at any moment, because you're actually always in it. So go ahead and respond to it. So we don't have a lot of time, but like, one thing I want us to pull out of this, this idea that God is spirit, and also talks about the fact that God is invisible. 
it is so hard for us to remember and to recognize that his presence is always around us. So one thing I would love for you to, to maybe try on the way home or try when you wake up in the morning is actually spend some time thinking about the fact that he's right there with you. Like there's actually, there's no empty seats in this room. Like he is here present with us. So when you sit down at your coffee table or wherever you sit down, I mean, to actually pull out a chair and say, let's spend time together, and then you sit down. I'm not saying get crazy or get real weird. Don't, you have to talk out loud. But like, just something to recognize that he's there, okay? To recognize that he's there, that you're having breakfast with your Savior, that you're driving to work or to wherever you're going with your Savior. If you start thinking that way, realizing that you're never alone in the car, there's always someone in the seat beside you, it starts changing the way you think. It starts changing the way you interact. Like you actually, I mean, he really is your best friend. But if you don't think he's ever present, he doesn't feel like your best friend. But if you really recognize he's always present, he really becomes your best friend. Like you get to talk to him all the time about everything going on. You can go for a walk. You can put your hand in your pocket. You can walk like this. You walk like this. <laughs> and you can have the best time because I still get to go and hang out with my best friend. So God is spirit, but he's given you an immaterial part. He's given you a spirit. And we're called to connect with him on that deep level anywhere, everywhere, always, at any time, in any moment. Do you ever will get to the point where the spiritual reality is there? You know, it was John that was called up and mm -hmm. given all this revelation. So he actually was. So there actually is the possibility of us being in the spirit realm with God. If he did it for one, that's no respecter of men. So if he did it for one, why can he do it for You're me? right. You're right. So what would it look like? What would, it what would that look like? So you're right. But also there's, like, there's something, there's like a detail there, this also a piece where he called John into that situation for a particular moment in time for a purpose, and that was to write the book of Revelation. Well, that book's done. So like, I don't know if like, we get the opportunity to have the same type of experience that John did because it was to accomplish a purpose, that purpose had an end point and it's but done. we all have the purpose of glorifying God, and that's mm -hmm. a big purpose. Absolutely, completely agree. So by having the experience of being interwoven into the very spiritual realm with God would glorify him even more as uh -huh. we have the ability to share. I, you, so, there has to be more to this. There has so, to be a way for us to be there. So what, what happened with John is God took him uh, and gave him the ability to see future visions. But you right now are in the spiritual realm. You have the Holy Spirit, holy and fully. The Holy Spirit lives in you. He's been sealed in you. You are filled with the Spirit of God. God's given you an immortal, an immaterial peace as well. Jesus' presence is all around you. The only thing is this kind of feels veiled because the Bible says it's invisible. So kind of what you're asking is, 
can't he just make it visible for a while? Because the reality doesn't change. Even if he just took away the blinders and you could see what was really around you, it's still already really around you. So there's a faith component. There's a belief component. So when we look at God's Word, he starts describing Jesus in the cross. He says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. What I see the Father doing, I do. What I see the Father saying, I say. It's kind of like the disciples when they looked at Jesus and said, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough. They're with the Son of God Himself. If you just show me the Father, if you just give me a little bit more, then we're good. But He looks at them and says, I and the Father are one. Like, if you've seen me, you've seen Him. So it's so that would kind of be my answer to your question is, if we, if we intensely and intimately look at Jesus, it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. But there is a bit of a veil, because he says that he's the invisible God. But he's revealed himself truly in his word. And there should be an eager expectation, which is what I think you're expressing, an eager expectation to see him face to face. And that's right. The Bible calls us to have that eager expectation for more. So I think your response is, is wonderful. It says that you love him, and you want to see him, you want to grab him, you want to touch him. But he says, not yet. Because our salvation is an already not yet situation. You're already saved, you're already forgiven, you're already adopted, you're already righteous. But you're not yet standing face to face with me in heaven. And that's something for you to yearn for, and to long for, and to get excited about. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you so much that you are here. Like you are really here. Like, you're right here, and you're with us, and when we walk out of here, you're there. When we get into our car, you're also there. May we be aware of your presence at a higher level all the time. Uh, what a great question to end with. What a great thought to end with. May we long for more, and may we pray as such. You say, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. May we seek you with all of our heart. May you continue to show us and reveal yourself to us more and more through your word through your people, through your spirit, and through your beauty. Uh, you are all wise, and we love you, and we trust you with everything coming in and through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.